good to be at Amen. Um, glad to be with you all again, as you already know. Um, my name is Michael Davis, and uh, yes, I've spent some time here serving at this church. Remember many of you brothers, and I appreciate you all for having me back. Uh, hopefully, you don't kick me out. Amen, somebody. That's the entire exercise this morning is where you will hear me say amen, and I will expect for you to say amen back to me. Amen, somebody. Oh, my goodness. We're doing great this morning. Uh, as we get into God's word, one of the things that um, we're going to think through through Titus is uh, what it means to model good works, what it means to model good works. And so when you look at the book of Titus, we're diving right in. Titus chapter two, before we read it, is a pastoral epistle um, written by, possibly written by Paul. And as Paul is writing this, it is in, in line with First and Second Timothy, three pastoral epistles in which he did not write in prison. And as he was writing, he's writing to instruct Titus on how to lead the church in Crete. And as he is trying to also affirm Titus, you see Titus being a Greek who is uncircumcised and has also been with Paul as Paul is trying to make his way to Rome and he stops on this island. Uh, he has cared deeply for him and he affirms him by calling him his son with a common faith. But the idea in which uh, he was not circumcised, one would believe, well, how, you, how do you have a common faith? Paul was trying to make, it, uh, make an effort to show and demonstrate that it's not by circumcision that they're brothers, but it is through the Lord. Amen, somebody? So let's dive right into God's word, starting chapter 2, Titus. Titus chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. Having nothing to say evil to say about us, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn, I mean, they, yeah, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared in bringing salvation for all people, training us in renounce to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and 
to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things and exhort, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Very words of God. Amen. Let me pray briefly. I know Jerry's already prayed, but Father, allow the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said together. Amen. So when you think about godly men and what it means in a culture that oftentimes, and I would argue that there may be a spiritual attack on the church when it comes to manhood. Oftentimes do men even think about modeling good works or even the fact that you can be cultivated and built up in the church as a man. Does society think about the fact that there is instructions for us as men to be cultivated in a deep, robust way so that we may know how to lead in society? The society know that men have a book, a great book, and a great God to help demonstrate what it means to live with integrity. Oftentimes we see men will look to other things in order to develop and grow. And I think that that's some, there's something to that, especially as we see from generations. What we say that we look to the church to model good works? From manhood in particular, do we look to the church to demonstrate, does society look to the church to demonstrate what it means to be a man? I would argue in a society that is becoming increasingly post-Christian that they are not. Increasingly post-Christian they are not. And in which, which, which what that means is generation upon generation, decade upon decade, we've heard of modernity. We've heard of post-modernity, the, the beliefs in which you reject religion, the beliefs in which you reject absolute truth, the beliefs where you become a skeptic and it is okay. We've seen and seen research of a growing apathetic generation that is coming that does not want to have anything to do with church or religion or any principles that are deriving from the Bible. Where are we growing as men? I like to have these conversations with men. I like to talk to brothers because I think when everything becomes relative in terms of your worldview and not even seeing how there are certain urban myth mythologies that derive from the tension between ethnicities because this has been stewarded the wrong way. There are so many ways that this book has instructed us, but so many ways that it's inflicted pain because of who's been the instructor, who's been using it. I want you to hear me clearly. 
The question that I am asking is what does it mean for us to model good works? What does it mean for society to look to the church to build men in our society? We have to wrestle and understand that when we talk about the lack of initiative in our church from the male engagement, when we talk about the conversations that happen from an intergenerational um, uh, standpoint where some older brothers talk about younger brothers and younger brothers talk about older brothers, what is that tension like? How have we demonstrated what it means to care for one another as men? Younger and older, black and white, black and brown, Asian, etc. How have we cared for each other? When we think about that, there are a litany, th a litany of things that we can enlist and even think as to what has happened. But we know that there is one individual who's modeled grace the most, and we have been able to be beneficiaries of that, and that's Jesus Christ. He has been the godliest man, the manliest man of all men. But the idea of which we have to constantly live in a society that is post-Christian and that is growing to post-Christian, we have to ask ourselves, how are we being influenced by culture to dumb this down? It is not the very thing that we use to sharpen us, to grow us, to help us become the men that we, that we need. Everybody... I'm assuming in this room is a professional. You have some degree of education. And with that degree of education, over time, you've consistently grown in your understanding of your, uh, of your occupation. You've added credentials. You've been certified. You've been able to steward and grow. Have we in our society taken the same approach when it comes to growing as a godly man when it comes to learning God's word, stewarding his word, allowing the virtues to become the very thing that permeate from my being. Amen, somebody. Amen. I'll just make sure y'all awake. I understand it's 6.30 in the morning. <clears throat> but y'all are used to getting up. This morning, I think this book, Titus, zooms in on Titus chapter 2, zooms in on some of these particular things that I bring up. But we'll also draw in the surrounding con context in order to demonstrate what it means to model good works particularly in a Christian household. I want you now to know what I'm particularly trying to say is that I believe that the Bible gives us an example through the Christian household from, to demonstrate what it means to live like a believer, model good, model God, good works in God's economy. Because if we were to look at God's economy, it's the, it's the cosmic household, Christian household. It's, his, it's, his, it's all what he owns. And so as believers being ambassadors, or to put it like this, to be representatives of Christ who are redeemed, we have a responsibility. And that responsibility flows out of how we lead our homes. That's not um, excluding single men. How do you lead your life? How are you stewarding that? And I think Titus helps us with this this morning. But if I want you to hang your head on one thing. I want you to remember one thing. This is what I want you to remember. One thing. Our household should be point to God's economy. Our household should point to God, God's economy. There's a deep connection in the way you model sound doctrine and good works. You should, the, um, you should have sound 
ethical and theological understanding that brings about good works. You should have sound, ethical, and theological understanding that brings about good works. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? So our interdependence, I want you to understand this, it's not a weakness, but it's a strength. Our interdependence is not a weakness, it is a strength. Oftentimes as men, we think that we have to do everything alone or that we have to control it. That if we can't be the perfect handyman, then we have failed. Even when we don't follow the instructions. But that's the point. We, are, we have instructions. We're giving something to depend upon God and to be dependent upon one another because we are God's people together. His possession, his chosen people, his treasured people. So understanding that, then I want, I'm going to use an analogy, and that analogy is football. A lot of y'all may have played sports. You may have not played sports. Many of my analogies at times, when it comes to dependency, I use football because that's what I play. But you know one thing about football, you need your teammates. A quarterback cannot play football without a lineman. A running back cannot play football without linemen. Defensive linemen need defensive backs and linebackers. Amen, Ryan Sadler. When you think about that, what if you were to get on the field and next thing you know, the quarterback did not have his lineman? What would happen immediately? He would be crushed. If the running back did not have anybody to hand the ball to him, or did he, nor did he have any lineman, what would happen? He would be crushed. If the quarterback did not have any receivers, he'd be lost. He may have to scramble. Whatever. He's dependent upon his teammates. But what happens when he has everybody on the field, but the blocker misses his assignment. In real, game in, in real game time, he can make an excuse. I tripped, my shoelaces, something happened, I forgot. But think about when you have to watch film. A lot of people don't think about when you have to watch film. Film is one of the most humiliating aspects as to growing in your craft as a football player. Why? Because you see and you're exposed every single time on tape. Tape doesn't lie. The film does not lie. You don't, if you hit, didn't trip, if you missed your assignment, it's obvious. You're exposed. Everybody knows it. And you have to be penalized for it at times. Doesn't that sound gruesome? And then I, I, I even, I, I don't even, I like it, but I don't like it. I like what it teaches you. If one person messes up on the team, everybody messes up on the team. Every time it's this level in which you're understanding that you're dependent on one another. God's word is like a film room. It exposes the errors in our lives, but God is gracious. But it shows us in order to correct us and instruct us, guide us and lead us. So when Titus, when Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, but as for you, if I would ask the question, how, how are you to be dependent upon God? He says, but as for you. Remember, Christians who are who've described themselves when you look at chapter one as evil beasts, lazy glutton, liars. Look at chapter one, verse uh, 12. <coughs> when you look at chapter one, verse 12, what do you uh, you look at chapter one, verse 12? He says one of the Christian prophets of their own said Christians are always liars 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul then testifies. He says that this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and get this, they're unfit for any good work. The theme throughout this entire letter, good works. So Paul says, but as for you, Titus, this is what I want you to do. I want you to teach what accords to sound doctrine. I want you to teach what accords to sound doctrine. After describing what, it mean, what, what a Christian should be, he counsels him in this particular passage. He counseled him to remind him who he ought to be, what he ought to do. You remember when your parents would call you out amongst from your friends? And they, were, they may have called you by the name that they know you by, but somebody else doesn't know you by? Maybe your middle name or your last name. However you knew when they called that name, that meant come here, right? And at times what they would tell you is, why are you doing what other people are doing? Or if the teacher had written you up and you got a, a note home and they said, why are you doing? I, well, I was just following after Barton. I, I, I was just doing, I was just doing what Barton, I didn't ask you what Barton was doing. I asked you what you were doing. I, I, I was just, I was just doing, the point is, the focus is on you. And this is what Paul does to Titus. I want you, Titus, to take up the mantle. I want you, Titus, to teach truth. I want you, Titus, to lead this Christian community, to teach what is important for Christian homes in this particular city. So Titus is commanded to teach sound doctrine which refers to the gospel message and the teachings of the apostles. And it dismisses, or even not simply dismisses, but it actually rejects foolish controversy and heresy. It rejects it because doctrinally sound teaching is a manifestation of God's good works of the people who know God. I want, did you hear that? Doctrinally sound teaching is the manifestation of good works among the people of God. That's what it means to be a faithful man to God's word and to his people. Not a faithful man to men's journal or, or, or Esquire or GQ. I don't know what y'all read. Or uh, men's health. Whatever you may read in order to instruct you, I want to encourage you. There is no self-help book, and the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible actually gives you truths. Everything else may say a suggestion if it does not derive from God's word. 
This truth then is one that actually leads you and it guides you and it allows you to be deeply rooted and it sharpens and shapes you in a way that nothing else can do it. Brothers, I know it's easy to teach even when you are leading your children or leading someone else. The first thing you want to do, teach them how to throw a ball, teach them how to bounce a ball, teach them how to be competitive. If it's not sports, then you want to teach them how to be the smartest in the class. Or you want to just teach them how to get off the couch and stop playing video games. You're trying to motivate them. You're trying to teach them your children or a younger brother or it may be a peer. And But the point is, if it's not by God's word, what happens is it falls down and they lose it. God's word actually allows them to sustain something. It will cause them to remember. And you say, Mike, well, I know this. I want you to get this. In the context of this Christian community, they are in homes. Whenever they would go to pray or they would teach, there was even this picture in which you can see a synagogue in wealthy individuals' homes would be right downstairs, and everybody lived there. There was the kitchen. There was the quarters for the bond servants. There, were, there was quarters for guests, tra traveling guests who would come. Everybody would be there. So whenever teaching happened in the home, a lot of people were around typically. So whatever happened in the home, it influenced them. But what the irony in this particular context is that the Christians were so pagan influenced in their society that the behaviors that they demonstrated were ones that were actually perpetuated in their own society and then merged together with Christian teaching. And so what Paul is saying is you have to help them understand that they cannot, men, be sexually immoral. They cannot just sleep with whoever they want to sleep with. The Bible teaches them not to do that. They cannot drink themselves under the table. You already heard, that's, that's my alarm, I was supposed to get up at seven. Excuse me. They cannot drink themselves under the table. Lazy gluttons, remember? Evil beasts. They didn't handle themselves well in public. And Paul is trying to instruct them to say, tell, to tell Titus to tell them that there's a way in which you should live as a Christian. There are two Psalms that comes to my mind when it comes to this. It's Psalms 1, where you are rooted, you're planted in God's word. He's the very stream of water. He tells you the three negatives of, of what not to do, what not to walk, what counsel not to take. And he tells you what a blessed man looks like. He shows you what fruitfulness looks like. That's a picture for us to take into mind that if we are rooted and planted by every other thing in our life that is not God's word, we will wither away and be useless like chaff. We will be rootless like chaff. We will be weightless like chaff. And then the other thing when it comes to hiding God's word in, my, in our hearts that we do not sin against him, Psalm 119 and 11, hiding his word in our heart to root us to direct us, reorient us. Everything around us grabs our attention every single day. When we wake up in the morning, we think about what do we need to do next? 
We are concerned about what what uh, we're concerned about. What task do we have to finish? Some of us are type A individuals and we have to do the same thing. But if we read the newspaper, whether that's the tra whether that's the commercial appeal, if you still read that or if it's the Daily Memphian or if it's the New York Times or if it's the Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, if you're reading the news before you're consuming God's word, what happens is you root yourself in the wrong place. You allow yourself to be distracted. Your hearts are not oriented. You're flustered and mad because of what you've read or what you've seen. And God is saying, if you just wake up, fix your mind on me, call on me, talk to me just for a moment, brothers. I will help you be dependent upon me. I will teach you how to adhere to my word. Good illustration of this is, the way in which they seen themselves <coughs> constructing value systems. Those value systems would, would ensure that their house would, live, would be a particular way. That was a hierarchical structure. The man was, in this time, was the, was the head of the home. There was the man, it was the woman, and then you, had, uh, you, you also had the father and the child, and you also had master and bond servant. And so it's this structure that you've seen in the household that influence and impact every part of their life. And so this wasn't, you can't, when you read this, you can't read it as if, well, all I'm supposed to do is take what he says and, and apply it. I, I believe if we were just to switch that just a little bit, it can help us in our intergenerational relationships. Remember I said Christian households are to influence and impact the way that we look at God's economy. So if I look at all of you as my bigger brothers, and some of y'all may be my younger brothers, you are supposed to impact my life and vice versa, I'm supposed to impact your life. We don't have to live in the same quarters in order for our lives to intersect. Nor do we have to have daily encounters in order for us to encourage each other by the word of God. It happens through what? Examples. This is what he says to older men, the challenge. Look at verse 2. Or oh, sorry, yes, look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We're not going to talk about the women today, so we just skip down, right down to uh, verse 6. Likewise. Urge younger men, look at younger men, to be self-controlled. There that word is again, self-control. You can underline that in your Bible. We'll see it again. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may, not, may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Older men and younger men must model good works. That's who model good works. Also, older women and younger women. Well, I'm talking to men this morning. Older men and younger men of God must model good works. Some of y'all look at me like, I do this on a daily basis. This is what I do all the, all the time. But a lot of times you're tempted. You're tempted because culture, what it says is, I need to put more time into my hobby 
Then I put more time into building up men and instructing them. So what that means is, yes, play golf. But don't only play golf with your peers. Take a younger brother with you to play golf. That means do hobbies. But don't just do hobbies with people who are your peers. That means take a young adult with you, or a young adult, take an older brother with you. I'm telling you the most powerful picture of manhood is intergenerational relationships. The most powerful picture. Why? Because what you learn through those cross-pollinated relationships is far more than what you will learn by simply going to the golf course with your buddies. Going to do the same thing with your friends. I'm stretching that, and I believe that that's what we have a picture of, because if you're a younger man in the household, who do you see leading? You see an older man. Who do you see influencing? In this household, you see an older man. These younger men had a good picture of what it meant to lead, and brothers, we all need to demonstrate that in our lives. Commentators would say, though, if we go back to the context that Paul, in the first, uh, first century A.D., the context for older men was the age around 50, and younger men was around 20 to 40. And there was an ancient Greek uh, physician who divided the human lifespan <coughs> into seven stages. It was child, <clears throat> a child was birthed to seven years old, a boy was eight to 14 years old, youth was, were 15 to 21 years old, Young men were 22 to 28 years old. Men were 29 to, 20, to 49 years old. And then the uh, old man, which is where we get the Greek word presbytos, uh, was 50 to six, 56 years old. And then the elder man was 57 to death. Um, I remember being here and we were always trying to figure out what was that young adult age? So it, it kind of went up every time. It was, at one point it was 35, and then it became 40. I think it may be 45 now, probably 50. Um, but according to ancient times, that ended uh, a while ago. So if you are, I want you to think about that. Look around the room and look at, and think about your age and see how many people your age are around this room. 50 to 60, 50 to 56, how many of you guys are here? 20 to 40, how many of you guys are here? My more seasoned brothers, 57. Uh, I'm not going to say to death, uh, to, etern to eternity. Um, how, how, many you, how many of you guys are here? And when you, look at, when you look around here, I want you to ask yourself the question, how have we been examples of being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness? Sober-minded, meaning being temperate, individual level-headed, not subject to much wine, that's certain that it is not drinking obsessively, one that is able to be in control, dignified, worthy of respect and honor. Respectability was huge in that culture. Respectability was something that if you had, not only in Christian culture, it was respected in secular culture. Sound in faith being committed in love, in steadfastness, enduring pain, and having patience. 
Self-control was big because what that meant was you also had to have a level of restraint from all of the foolishness, literally, that was going on around you. And young men, I want you to think about this as he's talking to Titus. How have you modeled good works? How have you led with self-control? And since, well, man, we could talk honestly. How are our eyes looking at our sisters? This one portion in which scholars would say the new Roman woman was a woman who began, was an idealism or a worldview of a woman who was tired of being denigrated by men. Men would sit and be able to recline at the table when it came to gatherings and women had to sit upright and their posture had to be together. But when you were a wealthy woman, you were called, you, you would go into new Roman women, womanism, if you will. And what that essentially meant was that you had the same authority and you had the same level of respect that men had. And so then you could sit at the table and recline because of your means. I do think that it oftentimes our sisters are not respected. Women are objectified because of our lack of self-control. We overstep our boundaries at times. Is there anything that corrects us? Is there anything, any virtue that brings us in line? We think about the fact of being self-controlled and loving those around us. It's important to engraft that. Why? Because you wouldn't look at your, your, your sister or your daughter, your mother, in the same way. And if we are the family of God, we have to have that same mentality. Amen, somebody? And it's calling us to do this in all respects. Model good works, Titus. Model good works in all respects. Do this in connection with the sound doctrine and the good works. What does Ephesians 2 and 10 say? For we are his workmanship. You're like, okay, what does it mean to model good works? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, uh, we should walk in them. When you look at chapter 3, if you were to ever read this letter, whenever you read an epistle, you want to read the entire letter. You want to read the entire letter because you get the entire context. When you look at chapter 3, you see that he actually talks about how they ought to be prepared for the good works. But when he talks about being prepared for good works, he associates it with authority. He associates it with actually understanding how, they, how you used to be as opposed to how you ought to act. And then he goes into the gospel. And he shows that there's a new record. He shows that they're justified not by your works, but by Christ's work. He showed that the Holy Spirit poured out. That's why I'm a Presbyterian, because I believe it was poured out. Amen. But poured out upon the people of God to regenerate them and renew them. Paul is making the claim in which the gospel is solely tied to the fact that what he is doing in you should be an outward, uh, you should be, there should be an outward expression of what he's doing in you and what you're doing around, uh, around one another. Am I making sense? It goes back to the fact of what I was talking about, that sound doctrine is essentially tied to good works. And so when we look at that, we see then when you teach with integrity, when you teach with dignity, when you have that level of respect, that level of holiness, it overlaps. And then self-indulgence for Christians and for us as we take 
self-overindulgence and foolish acts. Those aren't the things that we're described by, but we're described by dignity, described by sober-mindedness, described by self-control, described by love, described by steadfastness. So then when we get to verse 8, I want you to notice something. Verse 8, essentially notice, you notice that godly virtues actually put naysayers to shame. Godly virtues actually put naysayers to shame. One of the things I think about is like when you're in your office, when you're in the workplace where you, where you are, you don't have to earn the respect of others by trying to gain relational capital. You do it by being a godly man. You do it by being a godly man. You don't have to try to defend yourself or over-communicate or overwork. You don't have to do these things because when you display godly virtues, it exudes and someone asks the, the question of why are you different? Even the way that you handle yourself ethically, it applies in the same way. But even the way that you treat younger brothers and younger brothers, older brothers, it shows that intergenerational relationships are key to, amongst men to growing one another. And I believe fighting the spiritual attack among men in the church, the lack of men in the church. Oftentimes when we qualify ourselves or individuals, it's by age and stage of life. We always, if we're older, we want to tell younger men, just wait till you get there. Younger men, we, we spite the fact that we may not be there and we feel as if we don't have any credibility. And I want to encourage one another that if we are to build those relationships, there should be a mutual affirmation and a mutual respect. That's what Paul teaches, a mutual affirmation. How do you affirm your younger brothers? And older men, how do you affirm? I mean, younger men, how do you affirm your older brothers? How does that work? How is that being intentional? One of the reasons I believe that men leave the church is because of the lack of grace. Men leave the church because they don't understand grace. When you look at verse 11, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing, all sal bringing salvation for all people, obviously for all people, but I'm particularly talking to men this morning. And when you think about that, that epiphany, that appearance, that eminence, it's not essentially transcendence where you have an authority figure that's not close to you and personal. That's that, that connectionalism that we need amongst one another. And then that grace allows you to empathize. That grace doesn't put, you to, put people to shame. That grace doesn't mean, make people not feel welcome. It doesn't make you feel as if you don't have enough experience. Hebrews 12 says that, Hebrews 12 too says that Jesus put the shame, he despised all of the shame on the cross. You don't have to live in it. You don't have to be afraid of it. Some of y'all got some stories that you don't want to tell. Some of y'all got some pains that you don't want to describe. You have some vulnerabilities that you want to hide. But I can tell you if you share them, the powerful act of sharing that amongst one another actually reveals who you are and the strength that you have by being deeply rooted in Christ because you're not defined by those things. Let me leave you with a couple examples. This week I was meeting with a young man and he was talking to me. He's just, he's a new believer. And as he has been, I meet with him every Wednesday. And as we're meeting, he said, Mike, how do I build this value system in my life that allows me to live like I need to live? And I said, listen, wait a minute, because I knew exactly where he was going. Very, very diligent young man. 
working hard in his studies, trying to continue and, and uh, matriculate where he is. And as he, as, he, as he is working, I want you to think about this. He's trying to dot every T and every I because he feels as if, if he checks it off, then it will be a transactional reality that allows him to feel good where he is. I said, stop there. Have, have you ever thought about the fact of what it means to be transformed? That what God is doing in your life is a new work. And that that new work doesn't mean that you have to live by trying to create a value system that gives you credibility. But the reality is that the transformation that happened in your life allows you to experience a grace that you may not even feel, sense, or understand, but it's a deep grace and a deep love that captivated your heart to even draw you to understand, wanting to understand God's word. He looked at me and his eyes began to tear up because all he wanted to do was try to work it out. I had another phone call. The man said, Mike, I think I'm about to give up. I think I'm about to give up on my faith. He's, he's worked so hard. He's just been out of jail. He has all four of his children. He's married, and his car breaks down. The only car that he has, he says, I'm about to give up the faith. This is just too hard. And I said, you still have breath in your lungs. God has given you the ability to call on his name. You're talking to me right now. Trust in him and be interdependent. Don't hold everything to yourself. Allow us as a church to help you. Allow us as brothers to come alongside of you. Don't try to do this on your own. The pain that you feel right now, don't give up. Continue to trust in God. Last phone call that I got was a man who was so ashamed because he was hiding his addictions from his wife. Hiding his addictions from his wife, which really wanted him, made him want to hide from the church. He, I found him weeping to me, and as he was weeping, he was just trying to explain that he tried to keep it under control. But he was under so much pressure at his job. Just having a baby. Not knowing how to take all of the pressure, trying to perform well at every angle on his job. I know many of us can relate to several of those scenarios. But the, the idea is that if every man were to understand that through spiritual attack you have brothers, younger and older, it allows you to experience the grace, stay connected to the church, live out sound doctrine, with good works, in a way that will glorify God for eternity. And that's what God uses the household to do, that the family of God may emulate what they do at home so that all the world can see the glory of God in the cosmos in which he has made, so that one day when he comes, there is a group of men, godly men, and that society will see, that will stand up for truth and will not fade away because they stand on the very word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these brothers, their hearts, their minds. I thank you, Jesus, that you have given them the desire and the taste to want to, to, want to wake up and hear your word every morning, to be gathered together. I pray that in our lives that this multiplies with a diversity of men, age, stage, ethnicity, every aspect of life, that they may grow, all of us may grow, so that we may know you in more ways through your people.
because you've called us to trust in you and to be a people together, to be the family of God. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.